CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Welcome to a holiday edition of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my usual co-host, Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times, and joined uh, again, old friend, Matthew Fairburn. He covers the Sabres for The Athletic, and this is a three-hoodie podcast. I don't know if it has to do with uh, what's happening outside. Everyone is snowbound. We are recording this on Friday evening, and... Uh, Three dudes wearing hoodies, talking sports. What can be better than that? They all have hoodies, but much to, because uh, I'm sure Paul Kaharski consistently tunes in and he'll be pleased to see that none of us are wearing hats. He was very upset about the lack of professionalism last time. We still haven't gotten all the way to collared shirts, but at least we've ditched the hats. and Logo collared down, shirts but... that say Tim Graham and friends on them. I'll have to uh, work that into the budget. Uh, next year, CTBK will have to help me with that. Uh, help me find the the right funds, uh, not in terms of sponsorship of upping the sponsorship, but as the accounting firm of Tim Graham and Friends, uh, they're going to have to move some things out of our advertising budget. Maybe we'll look around and we'll have uh, an advisory meeting with Gene Kirshner and uh, and uh, see if we can fit this into the twenty twenty three budget. Uh, You're joking words. about this, but I think we should be launching TGAF merchandise and having some of our super fans can purchase these hoodies to help support this show. Yeah. And do you think that would cover the cost of actually having these things <laughs> printed up? It would have to be like a uh, manufacturer on demand situation. But yeah, we make sure that we don't. Made to order. Made to order. Uh, yeah. Custom nameplates on the back. Right. It could oh. say Ravi on the back. Yeah. <laughs> we do know a. Uh, a t-shirt printer. I don't know if he wants us to mention uh, his name, but he is a <laughs> Elmo's super uh, customer. Yeah. We're going to have to pay and, him. Huh? We're going to have to pay him because we do. We will free, have to pay them. To like how it comes out. He has a prank where he, um, uh, if he does something for you gratis, uh, he has a prank that he pulls uh, somewhere in the design. And um, you, let's just say that it's wise for you to uh, just pay. Uh, and otherwise you're going to have to deal with uh, a hidden joke uh, somewhere uh, within the design of your t-shirt. Um, how's everybody doing? I guess, you know, nobody really cares. They're maybe listening to this podcast right now. Uh, the bills play tomorrow afternoon. Everybody's probably snowed in mostly a high percentage of people listening to this podcast and probably don't give a shit uh, how we're doing, but um I am snowed in for Christmas. I'm happy about it in that it's stress-free. I don't have to worry about being anywhere because I can't be anywhere. Uh, I will not be in Chicago for the Bills game. Um, Matthew, uh, the Sabres have canceled uh, their game, so you don't have to worry about trudging downtown for that. Jonah, it's Hanukkah for you. Uh, you uh, hate Christmas anyway. 
Um, and you, uh, it's always the war on Christmas uh, with Jonah Bronstein and I don't no, appreciate is, it. Christmas is usually one of my favorite days of the year because, you know, marathon of NBA basketball games on television used to go to the movies. I don't really do that anymore, but that's a big, you know, Jewish tradition on Christmas and Chinese food this year. I have to work, which is a little bit of a kink in the plans, but I'm still going to watch M- uh, NBA games. I'm still going to eat Chinese food and I'm going to be in the Christmas spirit. Matthew, what's what's your weekend look like? We're probably stuck. Uh, we had some tentative Christmas Eve plans, and we still have some tentative Christmas plans, but it's looking like we're the Christmas Eve plans are have been wiped out, and Christmas is probably dicey. I don't really, I can't really keep up exactly with. Nobody seems to know when this is going to stop. The accumulation doesn't look terrible, but the wind and other things but like you i i don't mind being snowed in for the holiday it's stress-free you don't have to worry about getting anywhere and just spend it you know um you know at home and it's nice and we're doing this podcast so we're all doing okay it means we all have for now power and internet and so life is good say that uh, adjective that you used when you were talking about your schedule you said the word a couple of times and it was quite uh with quite uh, definition that I ha- I have tentative plans. Ten- yeah, tentative. Um, yeah, about tentacles. Tent- tentative plans, which is the right way to say it. But I think that people say tentative, which you get rid of that T. And now I'm thinking to myself, that is exactly what I hate. Uh, I hear, especially uh, when you're watching the weather a lot, like we have been the past few days, there are meteorologists who say temperatures, which drives me crazy. Um, or the affectation that seems to be gaining popularity. Um, and the best example I can use, and there are others, but Tim Hortons, uh, you hear like the people dropping of teas. You are adding the tea and you're emphasizing it. And I like that. And I, it's, it stood out to me as you're talking about your tentative plans when I say tentative and I need to make a correction because I don't want to be a hypocrite. It's kind of like, like uh, the old bills, defensive tackle, Kyle Williams. Right. You you have to, you know, it's not Williams. It's Kyle Williams or the Tennessee (laughs) Titans. Um, There's all kinds of uh, people say it a lot and it's, uh, I don't start rushing and you start dropping letters and, uh, I think it's because I write more than I speak. So I just am used to seeing all the letters. Now, when I was in college in our our campus radio station, WBWC uh, taught us about W's as opposed to W. Uh, People say that they skip it over. And I think it's a broadcasting thing to really hit every letter. So when you're saying tentative, it just struck me. And I thought, you know what? Good for Matthew and uh, and shame on me. Uh, because if I am going to sit back and say uh, that meteorologist shouldn't, shouldn't say temperatures, uh, then we should be able to say tentative. What about the word? What about the position uh, behind home plate? Jonah, what is that? Home plate. Oh, umpire? The catcher? What is the catcher, position catcher. behind home plate? The catcher? Catcher, you say, Matthew? The catcher. Catcher, catcher. I grew up as a catcher guy. I think catcher is the right way. Um, but also, yeah, a catcher. It's There's an A in there. But you also catcher. have a catch. 
You play catch. You don't play catch. Stefan Diggs didn't make a catch. <laughs> Have a catch. All right. Mike Rodick, remember he used to say milk? He also said women when he was talking about one woman. He had a bunch of them. He also had something of, oh, hot dogs. Not hot dogs, but <laughs> hot dogs. Have you ever heard him pronounce uh, garage? What is it? It's more, I, I can't even accurately depict how Rodak would pronounce it. it it was like garage he like couldn't he couldn't spit it out properly not like the canadian garage which is funny because one of the first words we've heard somewhat clearly from our son was garage he'll run over to the door and i'm like he practically already pronounces it better than than Rodak, and he's a year and a half old so uh, i've actually been me i got a text Rodak and let him know that well Get that's because his mother is a good woman that's, that's right. <laughs> um, no matter how you pronounce it, it's a shitload of snow out there. There's been a conversation. Uh, Jonah Bronstein is a believer of this, that this uh, that the game on Sunday should not be played if you're in this snow band. Didn't you say the game should be moved, right? Well, it's tomorrow. Uh, Saturday. I didn't, I didn't say that, actually. Um, but I generally of the opinion that I thought last year's last week's game should have been moved to Sunday, even though the snow didn't attack us in the way we thought it would. But, you know, I don't think the television windows are more important than safety and travel and, and doing the right thing about playing the football game. This one's a little different with Christmas being the holiday, but next year they're going to start playing games on Christmas and that's going to be an annual tradition. So I do think that it should have been considered if it was a better option to move this game to Sunday than a lot of these games in this winter storm region should have been moved to Sunday. I was pleasantly surprised by the NHL getting ahead of it and postponing the Sabres lightning game. I thought that was well, Matthew. I, I need to point out though, that if the Sabres played in the dome, uh, this, true. Game, this game if wouldn't only. need to be canceled or postponed or moved at all. If the County would just pony up and build a dome over key bank center, mm-hmm. it would have been totally fine, but right. it worked but out it, very nicely. It shows the difference, though. A lot of these NHL games, specifically this Sabres-Lightning game, are not uh, married to a national television window and a national television contract that requires that the game be played at a certain time or else, uh, you know, under any circumstances, whether they're deadly to the fans or not. What they are more tied to, though, is the gate as... Tim has mentioned before when we talk about hockey and the the money the sport brings in, like each individual gate is important. And the Sabres lost a Friday night, everybody home for the holidays against, you know, a recent Stanley Cup winner. With decent weather, team. there's a walk-up crowd for this game. Yeah, there's a sure. there's a, a nice little so they lose that, they flip it and get a Saturday afternoon uh game instead, which I think will probably have. Uh, you know, hopefully, depending on if they're still in it, a, a similar draw for people. But um, so it's not, you know, uh, a terrible swap, but they do have that. I think I also don't know if the NHL would have been as proactive in postponing this game had it not bumped right up against the Christmas break and the mandated three days off that the players have because. The Lightning could have gotten to Buffalo. Inconceivably, you know, the Sabres and Lightning could have all gotten themselves to the rink today. But there's pretty much zero chance the Lightning would have gotten home 
tonight or you know saturday morning in which case they would be running into the three-day break and screwing everything up and the nhlpa wouldn't like that so i think that was one of the things that pushed them to be more proactive than maybe they would have been in another situation let's stay on the sabers uh, oh jonah you look well yeah but i want to say the sabers well i wanted to ask matt if he thought hockey wise if this postponement plays out well for the sabers with extra time for Owen power to get healthy. And That's actually what I was going to ask, not specific yeah. to Owen power, but just how, yeah. How does this, hey, does this help them or hurt them? Because they're also pretty hot. The lightning out of the equation and going into maybe some easier games or does the break hurt them? I actually, I thought it was like perfect, you know, exactly what you would want if, you know, now do you want to be off for eight days when you're on a four game winning streak? In a vacuum, probably not. But knowing that really what you had was one game in seven or eight days anyways, I don't think it hurts them even a little bit. I don't know. You know, a lot of guys mentioned, you know, the day before they broke that you're kind of everybody is starting from the same spot after the holiday break anyway. So really the only impact this is having is on this Friday night game against the Lightning. Maybe they could have carried something in. But, you know, Jonah mentioned Owen Powers out of the lineup. Henry Okiharu's out of the lineup. Eric Comrie's working his way back from injury. Matias Samuelson and Rasmus Dahlin, along with Kyle Ocposo and Zemgis Gergensen's, had uh, off days on Wednesday, their first day back at practice after that road trip because they were so spent. Rasmus Dahlin was on the ice for the final three minutes of that Vegas game. Uh, Matias Samuelson was on the ice for the final two and a half minutes of that game. I, it didn't feel like they were coming back from that trip carrying a bunch of momentum. What it felt like was that they absolutely emptied the tank on that road trip, and they had a nice spot already with three days off before playing the Lightning. So I thought the schedule set up fine, but to knock that game off of it, I think is even better. You know, you get to enter the break on a on a good feeling. You know, and yeah, you hope that you know maybe you know, you're throwing that team off the schedule and you can jump back in against Columbus and have, have some easier footing there. But from a hockey standpoint, they're just, just beat up enough and probably just spent enough from that road trip that I think probably the only guy that's feeling like he wanted to be on the ice right away after that trip was UPL, uh, the way he finished it. But I think the rest of them were probably grateful for some extra time to recover we talked about it after that west coast road trip early in the season too that lindy ruff uh message that he always liked to send after those long excursions would be that that first home game back is an extension of your road trip because you're playing in a place that you have kind of lost touch with there's a travel element to get you back to buffalo you're fighting off jet lag uh you're you know it's you're getting reacquainted with your family or your dog or whatever, you know, you're just, everything's still a bit of a scramble when you get home. And so this allows them to settle uh, that much more uh, coming back from that West Coast for, trip. Um, they, a lot of guys or did have Southwest uh, trip. Sorry. A lot of guys did have uh family in town, which is, you know, kind of the unfortunate part. Some of these guys don't really get a lot of chances for their family to see them play. Uh, I know the Krebs family was in town and, and Peyton's sister was supposed to sing the national anthem on Friday, um, which is kind of a, a bummer. Um, little things like that. I'm sure bum yeah. the guys out where, you know, you've got some family in town and, you know, you're hoping to be able to play in front of them. But at the same time, 
these guys don't get a lot of time with their family period. So, you know, now they're kind of hunkered down and, uh, still get, you know, that, and maybe aren't, you know, maybe they get the extra juice from playing in front of their family, or maybe there's just like the rest of us, right. The day before Christmas Eve, you're scrambling to get a few things done before the holidays and your mind is a little bit elsewhere. So yeah, all in all, it just didn't feel like a very big deal hockey wise, you know, fine to get it off the schedule and go into that holiday break feeling pretty good. They're sort of in the mix here now uh, coming out of the break, if they can keep things rolling. What did we learn about uh, the Sabres on their Southwest trip? Well, I would say that they are starting to get adequate goaltending to probably call themselves, you know, to have the belief that they can climb back into the, the playoff race and how long that lasts, I think is the big question. You know, I was getting a lot of, maybe not a lot. I, I hesitate to extrapolate a handful of comments as the majority of our readership or anything like that, but I was getting occasional comments about being too, too kind on UPL early on when he had gotten called up that I was, you know, writing fluff pieces and I was being too soft on him and he, he had no, nowhere. He didn't belong anywhere in the NHL. He's not an NHL goalie and it's changing very fast. Uh, the feeling on UPL is like, keep them in ride, ride the hot hand. The, the, the swings of emotion in regards to, to this kid are part of why I was a little bit, you know, easy on him when he came up because they weren't planning on him to come up. It was a little bit of an adjustment for him. And he's still pretty young in terms of games played professionally. He had COVID interrupt his development. He had some other things and he's starting to get hot, but now I find myself on the other side of it, a little bit hesitant to say, this is it. He's here. Ride, ride the wave. You right. know, you want to ride the hot goalie, but I think, you know, Eric Comrie is getting real close to being back. And that West Coast trip early in the year, Eric Comrie looked like he was going to be, you know, a really solid starter for this team. He cooled off a bit when, you know, half the, the decor was out. But he still, I think, has a chance to be a pretty reliable, you know, 1A, 1B situation with Craig Anderson. And, and yeah, UPL is playing well. So if they want to take their time with Comrie and let UPL ride this hot streak, that's fine. But even the semblance of decent goaltending for these guys, I think is a huge deal because the defense has been good when it's healthy, but it just seems like little injuries keep popping up. Like every time there's an injury with the Sabres, it's on the blue line. And the latest one is Owen Power. And you see how big of a deal he is when he's out of the lineup. He was, you know, eating up a ton of minutes for a 20 year old, uh, for anybody really. And, you know, to have him out, it's very noticeable. So, you know, I think what was probably the encouraging sign from the road trip, in addition to the goaltending was that they were winning games when they weren't necessarily playing their best. They were, you know, if you looked at all the metrics in terms of expected goals and, and possession and, shot attempts they were on their heels and and for stretches of those games but finding ways to come out and win in tough environments in Colorado in Vegas Arizona's not really an easy out i know you know they're looked at as a pushover and they'll be you know probably near the bottom of the standings but it's a group of players that has gave the sabers a lot of trouble when they were in buffalo and they they have been playing pretty hard so 
I thought they were three quality wins, not necessarily the three best performances they've had all year, but the way that they're finding ways to win when they don't have their best game and finding ways to win when teams are trying to do different things to them, you know, clog up the neutral zone, slow down their, their fast pace. They're starting to grow up a little bit as a group. And I just am fascinated by the idea of like what they can become in the second half of the season, because you don't hear a lot of people in the building, you know, they're not, they're not slapping signs on the wall that say playoff caliber. They're not, you know, they're not even really mentioning the playoffs and maybe it's because hockey's a real marathon of a season and they're keeping tunnel vision. But at some point that is going to start to creep into the vernacular surrounding this team. It's going to start to become part of the conversation, at least externally. And I'm curious to see how they handle that because that's a good experience in and of itself is to be in a game in late January or February that has, as Kyle Ocposo put it yesterday, to go into a game where you really need those two points. And they didn't have a lot of those games. It's not even that they've been in a playoff drought. It's that they haven't even had a lot of those games in the second half of the season. You don't even really get those games in the first half, you know, where you really feel like you need the points. So if they can get to that point, I feel like that that's a, a win of a season. And if they can, you know, somehow find their way into the playoffs, that's, you know, even better. Jonah, as much as you're out at the arena, how have you noticed any kind of fan apathy, either shifting to energy? Um, I've been out there a handful of times in the last uh, few weeks, and I've been surprised at, the energy not being better. Um, the Penguins game that I attended, there were a lot of Penguins fans in attendance for that game. And then they followed that game up um, a couple of nights later with, I can't remember who the opponent was, the LA Kings. And, uh, and it just seemed kind of flat, just, despite the fact that Tage Thompson is, you know, going to maybe be in the heart conversation, believe it or not. Um, Alex Tuck is on fire and Darlene is still emerging, although his, he's off his, um, his hundred point uh, projection, uh, but he's still a, a hell of a player and, and evolving before our eyes into a, a great two-way player. It just seems to me that the fans haven't come around yet. And it, is there a reason for that? Or maybe I'm off on it. Well, I think you summed it up pretty well there answering any your own question, but yeah, that was the last home game that came against the Kings. It was announced at 12,873. I thought it. No, but I'm asking you because you're there more. And I think that maybe you'd have your, you'd be more attuned to the, the subtleties of feeling the energy. Mine, mine is like, you uh, know, parachuting in and catching a couple of games that were um, not similar at all. You know, West Coast opponent versus uh, you can drive and come see Sidney Crosby from Southern Ontario and all this other stuff. So I'm just asking because you are, you know, it. In, in a much more nuanced way than I, than just those two games that I would have seen. Right. Yeah. I am generally smarter than you on this topic, but you covered the last two games. So I think that you have the, the correct summary of how that has played out recently. And, and I was mentioning, I think it was that last game against the Kings. I leaned over to Fairbury. I said, this looks like the smallest crowd of the year. And I don't know if the numbers bear that out, but it felt like to me, the, you know, the most sparse crowd and least energy in the building. Um, that I've seen in most every game. Maybe that game when the Bills were playing on TV was a similar atmosphere 
which is why I, I don't know if I share the opinion that there would have been a strong walk-up crowd on a holiday weekend for this Lightning game. Maybe with people in from out of town that this was a game people targeted early in the season as a good uh, Sabres event for somebody that's only in town for the weekend. But you haven't seen. I haven't seen much example. The big crowd seems to – there always seems to be a different reason, whether it's the opponent or a ticket promotion that might be going on. There hasn't seemed to be too many games where – the Sabres were the hot ticket that they had played very well the night before they were coming off a road trip when they played really well and it juiced the crowd a little bit. I haven't seen much evidence of that yet. I think that they're struggling with the fact that they didn't sell that many season tickets and it might be very hard to sell this building out for the course of the season without a higher season ticket base and that the bills are still playing and still going strong and there's other things going on. Uh, at this time of year in other sports, high schools and colleges and the weather that maybe there's an uptick in interest in the second half of the season when the Sabres are the biggest game in town at some point in the calendar. But that's not the case now. And not seeing Tage Thompson can score. He literally can score five goals in a game. And I don't know if that sold five tickets. Um, you think it would. It, maybe it sold his jerseys and sold autograph session tickets. But it doesn't seem to be that anything the Sabres are doing on the ice is exciting the fan base to the point where they're turning the turnstiles more than they were before. I, I think you're seeing a lot of energy in these games when they wear the red and black jerseys. They won all three of them. They've scored six goals in each of those games. There's a buzz in the building, at least so far in those nights, that there hasn't been the same with some of the other games. But you're not seeing big crowds. You're not seeing a lot of passion and energy from the fan base quite yet. Yeah, I would say the biggest crowd – the best crowd was Thanksgiving Eve, I believe it was, which was also the first time they wore those those red and black jerseys. If I'm in the Jack Eichel game, but that was a little bit different. Service. But I actually thought that the first time they wore the red and blacks was a better crowd than Jack Eichel. I think the numbers might have been better. I'd have to pull up the list. I think the numbers were better, and that just the overall energy in the crowd was just a much like healthier energy than right, the singing and, and yeah, maybe right. that's like you know my uh you know i just felt like the energy in the jack eichel game was like an over-the-top like you know venomous energy that it, people were coming out rightfully so coming out to express their hate for a single individual and on that wednesday night it felt like people were out you know expressing their support and love for the franchise, uh, even if it was probably more so rooted in the nostalgia that those jerseys were bringing up. And that's where I think that maybe the holiday this weekend would have had a similar effect. They were going to wear the red and blacks and you get like with Thanksgiving Eve, you get, you know, the people in from out of town that are like, yeah, let's hit a Sabres game. But to Jonah's point, there's really not been it's almost like you have to be really in tune to the subtleties of the season to be getting excited. I think even though Tage Thompson, it should be smacky in the face enough that, okay, that's a guy that I should just go buy a ticket and go see, but it's not as if the Sabres did what the devils did and ripped off a, a real long winning streak and put themselves right at the top of the conference and announced that, Hey, we're here. Because even coming off that first West Coast road trip of the year, they got their record up to about, I think it was seven and three at one point. And like Jonah, I almost expected, it's my first season covering this team. So first time being in the building on a nightly basis, expected like, 
man, they've been hot. I, I bet there'll be, you know, five extra thousand or, you know, a couple extra thousand in here, at least an extra energy. And I think it is a lot more dependent right now, the, the, where the franchise is at this moment, it's a lot more dependent on what, what night, you know, what day of the week is it? Um, you know, is there something interesting going on, like wearing a different Jersey, Ryan Miller night, I'm sure will be a big deal. RJ Knight was a big deal. Is Jack Eichel in town? Those types of things. The Bruins crowd was fantastic when that there was a lot of Bruins fans, but I think that was a sellout. So they've had some good ones, but Joan is right that it has not been, you wouldn't necessarily pinpoint oh, that big crowd happened because, you know, Tage was on his hot streak there. It's, you know, it didn't get worse during the eight-game losing streak either. You know, it's it's been fairly consistent, and I think it's worth monitoring because they were, you know, at last check, the Athletic did a story a few weeks ago, and they were right near the bottom of the league in attendance. And when you don't have the season ticket base, the tickets aren't quite as cheap on the secondary market because the team's not going to, you know, Joe Schmo in his house in Amherst doesn't want to go to the game and just throws the ticket on there for seven bucks or eight bucks. When you're getting them from the box office, that's not necessarily happening. So some little things like that are probably impacting it. And people are slow to get back into their habits after, after COVID and coming over the border, whatever led to great crowds and 11 years without the playoffs, frankly. And the bills are, are the show right now in town. They're not, uh, you know, it says something that on a night when the Bills are on TV, not playing in Buffalo, that that's going to keep people away from the professional sporting event happening in town. But that's what you're dealing with when you have a Super Bowl favorite football team and a hockey team that hasn't made the playoffs in 11 years and is probably going to have to fight tooth and nail to try to break that this year because they're still so young. And so that's just what the uh, what the Sabres are dealing with. The Sabres also haven't had a home game yet against the Maple Leafs. That's always a big crowd and drives the ticket demand up a bit with how many Canadian fans will try to get to those games and games against the other Canadian teams. Yeah, I think it's going to take to really get the building back. And, you know, Tim was covering the team the last time probably that the building was, although I don't know in terms of attendance when it really started to dip, but. I hear so many stories about what it was like when they were good and the way that building could get. And yeah, like a Leafs home game is going to draw a crowd, but it's going to be a, a pretty blue crowd, you know, a pretty blue and white uh, Maple Leaf crowd. And so I think it's really going to take like this team getting to the playoffs to bring people back, to make people say, okay, this is happening. Like this is, this team is good again because they, they just, it's, it's not the fault of hardly anybody that's actually on the team right now that, you know, that drought happened, you know, uh, but, you know, I think from ownership on down, there just was kind of a, a, a sour feeling about the team coming out of the, the pandemic. And uh, I think they have taken time to win back some of that trust. I do feel like the roster is worth being excited about in a vacuum, if they had missed the playoffs for three years and had this roster, you know, I think the crowds would be great, but 11 years is a long time in a sport like hockey, where you're asking people to come to 41 home games, a lot of them in winter, a lot of them on weeknights, you know, asking people to drive downtown sometimes in not the best weather. Like 
I understand it. So these guys seem to think they can, uh, they can win. It, it seems to be part of the challenge for the current Sabres group is like, you know, I've heard Dylan cousins mention it or, you know, a few other guys, like we can't wait till we got, you know, full crowds here again. Like they want to earn that back. And I think they're, you know, taking steps towards doing that. I want to ask Tim a question though, because I think last year crowds were very low and, and a big factor was disdain for ownership. And there were those two occasions when the owners were on the ice and they got booed. Uh, there's different, the dynamics with that has changed, but how much do you think that's still playing a role in, in the lack of crowds at Sabres games? Well, you know, I don't hear it as much and I guess probably because the team is better, but uh, you'd hear it in the reasons uh, from fans about why I'm not going to spend the money to go to the Sabres game. And you'd hear about the worn out seat cushions with the stuffing coming out of them and the broken cup holders and no toilet paper in the bathrooms and a place that hasn't looked like it's been painted or, or power washed in several years and all the different things that go along with um, having a sparkling new arena. Um, I haven't heard that as much and maybe it's because the team is better and you can't uh, people just who aren't looking for excuses not to go to the games anymore. If you're, if you weren't going to go, um, I don't know. I'm trying to talk my way through this uh, because I don't know if I know the answer. I, I don't hear as much displeasure about the Pagulas. Uh, of course, we are in football season where everybody loves Big Baller Bean and Sean McDermott, and uh, the Bills have the uh, the top seed in the AFC heading into this uh, weekend's games, and that's the overriding thing. Um, we've gotten out of that lull of that losing streak where the Sabres hit the skids for a little bit. The team seems to be coming awake again. Uh, the idea of extensions for Don Granado and for Kevin Adams uh, are actually digestible, or at least they should be for Sabres fans. Uh, there's showing some signs of life in the goaltending, like Matthew talked about. So really, when people talk about the Pagulas, it has to do with what the hell's going on with Kim? Uh, where is she? Uh, where is she in her recovery? What actually happened with Kim? Um, so there's this, this mystery. But in terms of just having the disdain, I don't know. And <laughs> In a strange way, maybe that's helping uh, the Pagula's image because uh, the the, the mere mention of Kim Pagula just got people pissed off uh, because she was doing a podcast with Maddie Glab on the Bills, but she wasn't doing something similar with the Sabres. There was all this belief that there was more attention being given to their NFL team and their NHL team was being neglected uh, because Kim was very high profile with things revolving around the football team, but not the hockey team. Uh, they didn't attend the hockey games like they attended the Bills games. Uh, and so I, I don't think that they necessarily neglected the Sabres, but in terms of where you would see them and a belief and a certain writer in town who likes to talk about uh, how uh, Kim Pagula doesn't know what she's doing and she's in love with her football team. And it's something that I don't know where he came up with that uh, other than just um, anecdotally. Uh, or where fans would see it because Kim Pagula would be on the Bills sidelines before the game, but their box is empty for the Sabres game, but they live in Florida. There's all kinds of reasons for that. Should they live in Florida? That's a different conversation. A lot of owners do because of tax purposes. Robert Kraft lives in, uh, lives in Palm Beach um, and not in Boston or Providence or anywhere near Foxborough. 
Um, this happens. Ralph Wilson lived in Detroit. You know, it's anyways, we can go down the list. Should the Pagulas live here and pay taxes here and all that and state taxes uh, in a perfect world? You would like to think so, uh, but they don't, uh, much like uh, most of their their peers. Um, so this, they can't go to all the Sabres games like you would expect them to. So there's been this built up animosity towards the fans. And I think namely Kim, some of it misogynistic, I think also you hear the waitress comments and all the different uh, uh, derogatory things uh, said about her as an owner. What can she possibly know about sports, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's all baked into the casserole of, uh, of anti-Pagulaism uh, that has been around Western New York for a few years. But the fact that Kim hasn't been around and everybody knows she can't be around, even though they might not know the reason why specifically, I think has kind of deadened uh, some of the vitriol and the, uh, the hatred that people have for the Pagulas just for being the owners of the team. Um, so I, but does that with stop them from buying tickets? I don't know. Is there a is there a feeling of I'm not going to support this team because I don't want the Pagulas to have my money? Maybe that's maybe that would even come from stadium uh, pushback uh, as opposed to uh, Sabers not being good pushback. Um, I just have a hard time believing that about the psychology of Buffalo sports fans that there would be enough of that. Of I'm not going to. We go. do see it. We do see it. You see it on social media. You see it. You see it, but it's so convenient when Cody Eakin is out there and, you know, the Sabres are skating to their 11th straight, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world. It's, it's like the people who, when the bills, you know, bills and other NFL players were kneeling for the anthem and they're like, I'm not going to NFL games anymore. And it's like, how many of those people are, were there last Saturday night, you know, because the bills are, the bills they're the super bowl right. favorite and they're a big freaking deal and they're playing in these awesome fun games and the whole community's involved and how many people do you hear now saying well those guys you know were kneeling during the anthem so i'm not i'm not going i'm not going to support nfl that. ratings are up all over the place you know, where do you see any of that and so that's sort of where i think what it is is a combination of apathy for the on ice product over the years with that as an as an easy excuse you get to feel real what's the word i'm looking for i can't you know you praised me for my my pronunciation earlier now i I can't but you get to feel real proud of yourself when you're like you have this real great you know reason for not going well i'm i'm not going to support these owners because virtuous you get to yeah you you feel real virtuous when you're i'm not going to support these owners because they're not putting enough attention or money into this or I'm not going to support these owners because they're taking too many tax dollars. Are those same people not buying bills tickets because they seem to have a real easy time. No, I think it comes down to the fact that tickets are so readily available on the secondary market, which Matthew already touched on that. If the C if the, if the arena, there's probably a price point or an analytic, uh, an algorithm that shows that you need to get to a certain percentage of capacity before uh, the secondary ticket market doesn't hurt you anymore. So let's say the place is 75% sold on a nightly basis or 80% or 83%. I don't even know what it might be. Um, but when it's 50% and the other 50% of the tickets, or there's a, so many tickets available that people don't want to use, 
um, then you can just buy them on the secondary market. And, and, and for, as Matthew said, seven bucks, uh, you can get to a Sabres game as opposed to for, you know, 65 or 80 and the Sabres aren't going to get that money. So I think it's just the, the availability of, of tickets, um, which was the case under Regas ownership after Dominic Hasek left. It was, you really had to be um, a sucker, a sucker or totally isolationist, uh, a hermit to not know somebody who could get you free Sabres tickets back in 2001, 2002, because all you had to do is know somebody who worked for Adelphia or you needed a friend of a friend. They were giving away tickets left and right to the Sabres games. They were paper in that arena on a nightly basis. And even then they were getting 9,000, 12,000. Um, it was, it was ridiculous, but I think we're just back in that, that point now where tickets are so easy to get that you don't need to buy them from the Sabres anymore. I think they should be paper in the arena more than they are now. There seems to be an active strategy to not do that. But if you could get more people in the building for a game when they score six goals in the third period, you might get more people that want to buy a, you know, a, what do you call it? The mini pack of tickets and come back for a few more games later in the year. Yeah. I, f- I feel like if those games became more of kind of like the Vegas game became when they beat Jack and it was like, man, if you were watching that on TV, you were like, man, I, I should have been there, you know, or like the RJ game. But to have that be a Tuesday night, right? Like, and you look at the crowd, Tage Thompson scores a hat trick and you look around and people are having a great time. I think there is a very much a, you know, that type of narrative that can start to play into a fan's head where it becomes the place to be again. It's not the place to be. I mean, they're the sport is, you know, is not what the NFL is in terms of demand and, and popularity, but it's also, you need to have, you probably need to have the winning to get what you're talking about. Those crowds that, and they're taking advantage of some of these good crowds playing good games. They beat the blues that night. Um, you know, when they wore the red and blacks for the first time they they are taking advantage of some of the decent crowds that they get, but they're just having trouble carrying that over. And it's not really the, the roster, you know, it's not the team itself's fault. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's, as we've just gone through a lot of different factors that make it really hard. It makes it amazing when you look at some of the sellout streaks in the NHL, the Bruins, I think are up over 500 straight sellouts, which is just crazy when, you know, when you think about it, but dozen years, the Sabres had an incredible, had an incredible streak. The Blackhawks recently came to an end. I think the Penguins came to an end last year, but some of these teams that go, you know, four or 500 games with sellouts like that could be Buffalo, but you need to be, I think now they need to win, win that back. They need to win back that type of passion because when you go 11 years, you almost, you make, you make an apathetic generation in some ways, a generation that's waiting for the other shoe to drop because it has, you know, all too often. And, you know, that's going to be something interesting to follow too. This idea that if you were, if you're 21 right now, you were 10 in your prime hockey fandom years, 10 to 21. Yeah. How many NBA fans did Western New York churn out over the last 15 years? Because the hockey was unwatchable. 
or worse yet, you know, Blackhawks fans because Patrick Kane was there and they were better and the Sabres were no good and or Leafs or whatever hot team, Tampa, I don't know, you know, how many people jumped on different teams? I don't know. It's hard. Or, it's... or people that were, they were always Bills fans, but now being a Bills fan is more of a 24-7 job. And there's some people that probably don't watch Sabres games because they're exhausted from driving That's around the true. city putting Josh Allen cartoons on street signs all day long. You can only just have so much energy in your mind and your heart for rooting for sports, and people are like 100% saturated on the Bills right now. Yeah, it's not a big enough city like the Bruins have that sellout streak, which is sometimes crazy to think about because the Bruins aren't always top of mind in Boston, right? The Celtics are really good. The Red Sox are insanely popular and have had a ton of success. The Patriots are, you know, the Patriots. But when it's that big of a place, I think you, you know, and the team is good, right? The Bruins aren't lousy. They're not missing the playoffs for a decade. They would have a much harder time selling out that building than they used to when they weren't that type of team but you know you don't get the the residual benefits of like being able to have multiple teams capture a city's attention at the same time when the city's just not as big and it, the it the bills piece of it is huge because like the bills uh the bills fever is is absolutely scorching the last couple of years as it should be i mean people have waited a long long time just like the hockey fans are waiting waiting and have been waiting for a long time but this is the bills moment and people don't want to miss that and the sabers have to create something similar they have to have something that people don't want to miss that's how you get people in the building that's why people were there for rj they didn't want to miss rj's last night that's why People were there for Jack because they didn't want to miss the Sabres sticking it to Jack, you know, little things like that. Or you just have to be a really badass team like the Bills are and you're going to have, you know, what the Bills get. That People still will have that energy for the Sabres. I don't think if this team makes the playoffs that people are going to say, yeah, I, you know, gee, it's 70 and sunny and there's going to be a party in the plaza, but, you know, the owners took too much tax money for that football team. So I'm going to pass. I'm going to pass on. I'm going to pass on that good time down there and uh, stick to my guns here. It's just not going to happen. If they're good, you know, all this, all the little factors that we've talked about here are like when they're good, that's all it's going to take. Like, and, uh, but good is not just winning a few games. Good is not being a few points out of the playoff race. Good is going to be like make the playoffs or be there in the final week where it's like this game gets them into the playoffs. People will show up, but it takes more than a few wins in the middle of football season when people are, have their attention elsewhere. I'd like to talk to somebody and I don't know who this would even be that covered the Sabres in 91, 92, 93, when Pat LaFontaine and Alexander Mogilny were great players and they were a playoff team, but didn't go further than the first round. And the bills were a Super Bowl team and was there, space in the market and the fan base for both of the teams to draw well at the same time or was it this situation where you know Sabres season doesn't really start for the fans until the Bills season's over yeah that would be the legendary Jim Kelly the late Jim Kelly uh, to tell us about that or Bucky Gleason maybe uh, he was in college that point he could probably view it as a fan who probably who was 
likely reading the newspaper every day and, and consuming uh, whatever media content was available at the time. Uh, but I want to talk about, or, you know, there, there's people around, but it would be harder to find, you know, the, the right guests to, to break that down. Right. Uh, let's talk about the Bills uh, playing at one o'clock tomorrow at Soldier Field. Um, if the Bills lose this game, uh, is that a problem? And the reason I ask the question is because the weather can do this. Low scoring game. Justin Fields is a game breaker. David Montgomery is a pretty damn good running back himself. And the Bills have struggled at times to stop running backs. Uh, we have uh, incredibly poor weather in the forecast. Wind chills well below zero. Uh, this is the windy city after all. Uh, and so <laughs> wind gusts might not be the same as they are in Western New York, but the city is known for this. It is December 24th. Um, this could be weather be uh, the weather as the great equalizer game, and it's one mistake from a Bills uh, upset loss uh, at a time when, granted, an NFC opponent isn't going to hurt as much, but you're looking at the Cincinnati Bengals closing from behind. You're looking at the Kansas City Chiefs with the easier schedule. Um, the Bills uh, will go and play uh, the Cincinnati Bengals on uh, January 2nd, by the way, on a Monday night game uh, down in uh, Cincinnati. Um, what happens, do you think? Do you think it matters much if the Bills uh, stumble and lose this game? Well, I think it certainly matters in the standings if they don't get home field advantage. They haven't won a road playoff game yet in this Sean McDermott era, and they haven't lost a home playoff game yet. So in that regard, yes, if they lose any of these final three games and they probably don't get the number one seed, that, that would matter a lot in that regard. Yeah, that's really the big thing is that they have not – not that they can't win a road playoff game. It's just that the easiest path, clearly is going to be for them to play at home. And I don't even really care about what the weather is like in their stadium. Playing at home is an advantage, I think, for these Bills. I think... And the bye week. And the bye week. Having that number one seed is... It's a, you know, there are advantages baked into it for a reason. Like, you were the best team in the conference. So that part does matter. Will they be... They'll only be a lesser Super Bowl contender if they lose this game for that reason, because they won't be potentially squaring off. It's as much about playing the Chiefs not at Arrowhead as it is about playing them in Orchard Park. Like they're, you know, playing them in a home playoff game at Arrowhead in the place that's given them problems. Uh, it would just be nice for them to be able to flip that script a little bit and have it at home and, you know, have that advantage for themselves but in terms of like tim is mentioning the path to victory here for for the bears and it's the fluke path in some ways right like hoping that weather you know makes things weird and and can you know get the bills to stumble a little bit and so does that diminish their their standing as as a juggernaut team in the AFC, probably well, I don't not. even mean from a, from a reputation standpoint. I mean, there is like Jonah say in the standings, it could be a ding that costs you. This is an important game. It I probably I would look at well, this. Could cost them in terms of their seed. So they it could lose two in a row. If they lose this one, it probably, if they lost, it probably would cost them the number one seed because 
Yeah, you could beat the Bengals, but the Chiefs have a pretty manageable schedule and would likely be able to take care of business in that way. So, yeah, that's why it matters. Every game matters from here on out until they lock up the number one seed. Once the number one, if the number one seed at any point is out of question, then none of it really matters. Anyways, it doesn't matter if you're two or four or five or whatever, you know, they're, I mean, they're going to be a top four seed because they, they're going to win the division, but yeah. Two matters they, for the home game in the divisional round. And part of that is I think the fans deserve as many home yeah. playoff games as they can get and, and deserve maybe that AFC championship game at home. That'll be a big local sporting event, whether the bills win or lose that game in the end. And make, one, might, make no mistake. The bills suck. You know, they're three and 11. They've lost three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They've lost ten of their last eleven games. Um, they are not good. The Bills. Uh, they just got crushed the Browns, by the Jets the Browns, a couple of weeks ago. Talking about but the Bears. Hung, who are you talking about? The Bears. Yes. The Bears. Yeah. Oh, you what said the I Bills. Say? I thought you were saying let's make no mistake. The, <laughs> hey, you said let's make no mistake. The Bills suck. Oh, did I say that? <laughs> this is where if we if we had in the budget Bobby. some nifty social media people, they would clip that and. If, that, yeah. if we had Bobby still, that would be a clip yeah. that would play at the beginning. Yeah, you're right. I'm Make sorry. No I'm looking the Bills suck. <laughs> the Bears suck. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I want to do it again because I just messed up. Yeah, ten of their last eleven. But they're a uh, They got team stomped by the luck. Jets. But um, they hung tight against the Dolphins. Uh, they almost beat the Dolphins. Uh, they just played the Philadelphia Eagles last week and lost twenty-five to twenty. The Eagles had to had to finish strong uh, to win that game. Uh, it's possible. And in this weather and at home, uh, they're, uh, they're, this is like an anything goes type game. One play, uh, well, it's, this, it's the case in any game. It could come down to one play. But I think when the weather is like this, all it takes is one slipped defensive back and a missed tackle, and David Montgomery or Justin Fields are going for 80 yards and a touchdown. Well, and I think there's this perception – somewhat rightly so, that the Bills got through the crucible with those three games in 12 days and, and two of them in Detroit and right. all on the road and the practice schedule and the disruptions from the weather and the injuries. But really, they're still in that a little bit, even though they've had these two home wins the last two weeks. But they've still had a lot of weeks, and, and this is another one where it's a short week because of the holiday and they're not getting all their practices in and they, they have a lot of players on the injury report and all these different outside of football factors. I think there's a mental and emotional thing that comes into play when you're playing on these holiday weekends. And the Bills have been very good at not letting that affect their season so far. But I could see a scenario where if they lose the game tomorrow, that those factors are a big reason why, that it was just too hard for them to keep the, the winning streak going with all of these challenges coming at them week after week. And then finally caught up with them, you know, on a Christmas Eve game that, you know, might be a game where they lose. And you look back at the end of the season and say, how, you know, how did they lose that one? And those are some of the reasons why. Well, so let's not talk about a Super Bowl parade yet. Uh, but Jonah, you attended a victory parade in the city of Buffalo recently. I know you want to touch on that. I think it's a pretty cool deal. Uh, Bennett High School winning a state championship with all of its uh, turbulence throughout the season and some hardship and some controversy because of uh, Section 6 forcing them to forfeit a bunch of games over a clerical error. Um, but um, if you can for us, uh, sum up what this means, uh, Bennett high school, uh, in, in a, in a league that has been much maligned over the decades, 
um, to come from the city of Buffalo and to produce a championship like this is a pretty big deal. Well, it's a championship parade through the city of Buffalo, which doesn't happen too often. And it is a big deal. Maybe I don't know how deep into the woods we can get with this, but you know, the, the history of city football that wasn't part of section six, it wasn't its own thing with the Harvard cup for many, many years. And then was allowed into section six, but was kind of discounted and wasn't, didn't believe that many of these programs would be successful. And what Steve McDuffie has been able to do over the course of a decade and building up this program into being a class double a state champion, the largest classification and, you know, an inner city school with a predominantly black roster. McDuffie is the first black head coach in New York state to win a state championship in the state in history. Uh, black superintendent, black mayor was a very much a black excellence type vibe at this um, parade yesterday. And then the weather held off and it was very much a, I think a proud moment for a lot of people in the city overall, but also a lot of people who have any connection to this Bennett program, which actually draws players from six different city high schools. And this is a team that's going to, this is a program that's going to be contending for state champion unless they do something to screw it up. The momentum they have going for many years, there's reason there's these phase in schools that haven't had seniors yet. There's going to be more talent coming into this Bennett program as the years go by. And they already have a team that had 11 players on the all Western New York team, which might be a record. They have two division one signees, three guys going to division two schools from their seven member senior class. They're probably going to have seven guys, six or seven of those seniors in college. And they have you go in the junior and sophomore class, another six, seven uh, eventual division one, division two type players. It reminds me a lot of what Niagara Falls basketball was uh, 10, 15 years ago, where this is a public school. They're not drawing from the entire Western New York area, but it's a big city with a lot of talent. And, you know, if, if they weren't on this team, it isn't these two seniors, Rashard Perry and Jaden Lewis. There's NFL players in this city of Buffalo, Buffalo public school system. And 5, 10, 15 years from now, I think we're going to look back and say that there were multiple NFL players playing on some of these perennial state champion Bennett teams. And, now, I don't really get the dynamic because I never covered high school sports here in Western New York, but I, I know how recruiting works uh, with the private schools. Do you think that what Bennett is doing here will prevent kids from automatically, and I'm talking about the best athletes, automatically going to Canisius High School, St. Joe's, St. Francis, and saying, you know what, I'm actually going to stay and, and play here at Bennett? Well, I mean, that's, that's come up in, in speeches and press conferences. Steve McDuffie has been very open about saying, talking to the city and saying, you don't need to send your kids to the Catholic schools to achieve this football success. Um, there's other maybe social and educational components that are reasons why uh, parents send their children to private schools. But if it's just an athletics decision, he's trying to say, we can be just as good and maybe even better at Bennett High School than you can get at any of these private schools. And I don't think they're going to lose any of their current players to Canisius or St. Francis, but there's always going to be that, you know, competition for the eighth graders coming up and, you know, the younger players as to how you feed them into your program. There's also an interesting, if you really break it down with Canisius and the coaching changes they've had and whether they have the type of coaches at some of these schools to get city of Buffalo kids and attract them over. Sometimes you have to hire city of Buffalo people almost as recruiters to have on your staff. And I don't know if Canisius and St. Joe's and St. Francis have a lot of those or the right guys in those positions right now. So I think a lot of the city talent is going to stay at Bennett. They're going to want to stay at Bennett because of seeing the success and the media attention, you know, this suspension thing or the forfeit thing hurt their record and seemed like it hurt the team. I think it helped them in a perception standpoint and gave 
this team a storyline and a rooting interest that now a lot of people in the city are behind it and young seventh and eighth and ninth grade football players probably want to be part of the next great Bennett team or there's young kids that maybe will be playing for Bennett 10 years from now and think about I watched those Bennett teams or I watched that parade and it inspired me to want to do that later in my life so I think you could be seeing the start of a dynasty here if the right people stay in the right positions and do the right things and yesterday they were talking a lot about trying to get a a new field house for uh, the city of Buffalo and that could be a game changer in that regard so we'll see how it plays out every year could be a little bit different but I don't see a lot of these city of Buffalo schools players being recruited to Catholic schools in the near future. You mentioned eighth graders being recruited to uh, the Catholic schools. And I know that that happens, but when you say that, you know, it's a big part of the game, every time I, I know, but a, it reminds me to coach at a, at a young game. I ask him if he's recruiting and then they don't say yes, but they don't say no. Uh, it, but it also reminds me of uh, uh, what is at uh, Graham central station. Uh, I roll season uh, national signing day uh, was just a couple of days ago. And I had to mute an awful lot of accounts that I normally follow because they were just tossing up these, what look like little trading cards. Every school wants to put out their, their list. Uh, it's not just a list. You don't put out your recruiting lists. you you put out you, every player is his own tweet. He gets a commitment page or whatever the F it is. And these kids don't even shave yet. And I get it. I watch college sports sometimes. I'm not into it as much as I am professional sports. Uh, I know that these 17-year-olds are going to turn into future uh, NFL players and NBA players. But when it comes to National Signing Day, uh, there's just something about it that just makes me think of all those people who fill the big stadiums. You know, we're talking about the big house, uh, the horseshoe these hundred thousand seat arenas, people who go nuts with their tailgating over and they, 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 their day is either ruined or made over children, uh, borderline children. Uh, and it, I don't know, there's just something about it that when I really think hard about it, it just makes me shake my head of, and it's not, it's not the school's aspect of it because they have to, really pump the tires on every recruit that comes through their doors as, and they, because every other school is going to do it. And if they're doing, if they're putting out mini trading cards or tweeting out these things, digital, whatever's NIL, this and that um, at Alabama or even at Cincinnati or at Illinois, uh, then you have to do it at your school too, or else they're going to say, Hey, look at what they're getting. They're getting that cool thing similar to, Hey, check out this school. They wear five different helmets this year and, and seven different uniform designs. How come we only have two? You know, there's all kinds of shit and there's everything's being compared. But um, when you see uh, that we've landed, uh, I'm using a Boogie Knights name, you know, just because I want to pick a fictional name, that we Perfect. got a chest Rockwell from Chattanooga and he's standing there and he's maybe even pointing at you with the football. You know, he's pointing the football at you. And you can tell that this guy just got hair on his balls about a year and a half ago. And uh, he, uh, what, you know, and it's like, what are we doing here? Like with this, these are children. Uh, and we are just pinning the hopes of big, big state you uh, and the success of my Saturday afternoon. If it's going to be made or broken by this kid uh, who doesn't even have his driver's license yet. 
Well, I wanted to give Matt a, an opportunity if he had a take, but let me just jump in real quick. That's very yeah. How'd Missouri do with its children uh, with its re, its children recruitment this year, uh, Matt? Well, let me just say that the the graphics that you're railing against is very athlete driven. That's what they want, and the schools. Yeah, are I know. I get that. Culture. And I know at lower levels, like say junior college, they'll get a commitment, and the kid will kind of say, "Hey." You know, you got a graphic for me, or if he doesn't, you, you wait to announce it before he can commission a local graphic artist to make him the graphic. Like, that's the thing. More than the scholarship and the education and the playing opportunity, or maybe equal to that, these athletes, and it goes for offers as well as commitments, they want that social media graphic that they can get shared around by their friends and that kind of love and appreciation that comes from just that graphic. Right. And before social media, it was media guides. It was media guides where these things mm -hmm. were published, not for the media, but it was to hand out to recruits so they could see. And the thicker your media guide, the more obnoxious your media guide, then that was viewed as your badge of honor. Uh, Louisville basketball used to put out a hardcover media guide. Uh, and it was, it was a book every year. Um, and it was not for the media. It was, it was in fact a hard, a hardback, a hardback book is, is, impractical for the media because we can't thumb through it quickly looking for information. The whole thing was anyways, uh, but that's what it used to be before social media. And then it became the next step was we're going to give you your Jersey and we're going to walk you out into the arena and the fight song is going to be playing and you get to see your name up on the jumbotron. And now it's all the social media driven stuff. So th this is, this has been around in different forms, this wooing and this recruiting, but now this is very public. And it's out there. And, and that's, I think, the part that makes me that hits home with me is the fact that these schools are, are churning out uh, these things. And I know they're athlete driven and you have to do it or else the kid is going to feel like he didn't get the full experience. Um, but you're sending it out there to the public who looks and says, uh, this is a child. And, and he's going to and he's may not play for a couple of years. It's you know what? And the NHL draft is not too far off uh, from this. You know, the whole concept of look at this. And I know that they're trying to copy what the NFL does with its draft and the NBA, but the big show of we're going to draft somebody. And with the exception of the first, maybe two or three picks, um, the team that drafts this guy, we're not going to see him for four years. Or maybe he's coming from Russia or maybe he's coming from a different country and he's going to go up through their their development program. Uh, we'll see him eventually, maybe. Uh, but anyways, that's it's just it, it's I get a kick out of it. Um, that the hopes and dreams of so of billion dollar industry, billions of dollars of industry, the highest paid um, state workers in in almost every state in the union is the football coach or the basketball coach, and all this money is just pinned on getting kids to go to your college and join your program. You know, you would think for these kids it would be enough to get a nice tweet from. Mike Rodak that says so-and-so has committed <laughs> to the university of Alabama, according to a source, you'd think that would be enough for kids, but you know, kids these days, they just, you can't please them. But I at least like now that it feels like a little bit more of a level playing field where in some ways it's not totally level, but you get these like Mizzou got uh, Luther burden. The third, I think his name is wide receiver recently. And it, Missouri kid and got a bunch of NIL deals. Like there was a lot of incentive for him to stay at Missouri because, you know, local endorsements and things like that. So that part's kind of fun, but it has gotten, I have been blissfully out of touch with college recruiting uh, 
probably for the since almost since I left college at this point. I mean, since I had to cover it, which was an interesting thing to cover for a little while because it's a uh, like Tim mentioned, a, a there's a lot of money getting thrown around. Now it's a little bit more out in the open, but uh, it's certainly something, something I never experienced as a, I, I was never recruited. So I don't know how these kids feel, but it is a weird position to be in. Uh, and the arms race for the gaudiest announcement and the please respect my decision. All that part sucks too, right? Like the <laughs> amount of fans that come out, they like, and just I, beat the hell out yeah, of them. I'm jokingly like, verbally, saying, please you know, respect just like, my decision. F but, you, you suck. I hope right. you break your leg. This person that they didn't know or this kid that's committing right. when he's 16 or 17. And yeah, so that's my take. Please respect their decision and their infographics, whatever whatever it is that they need to, to feel good because that is a, a strange world. Again, this well, is a how far it's come type moment. I know that this is like old man stuff, but 25 years ago when I was covering UNLV, which is rather prominent program, especially in the 90s, you know, they were maybe four or five years removed from winning a national title. Um, they were a, the vanguard of paying players too. They were a poor football program, but they were still in the in the whack and then the, the mountain West, I mean, they still, I mean, it was still considered a recruiting hotbed coming, you know, getting kids out of Southern California and Texas and, you know, Arizona, and you'd pull some pretty big recruits, JUCOs, and you would get at the Las Vegas sun or the Las Vegas review journal or channels three, four, and seven. I think they were, um, you would get a press release. And it just had the names on a list. And then that afternoon, you would come down to a, a, a room at the, at the stadium or in the athletic department, and they'd give you a little slideshow, uh, maybe, and show you, give you some highlights. And you get to ask the coach what he thought of his recruiting class. And that'd be the extent of it. And that was, I mean, 25 years ago, I know that sound, that's a different era, but that's not that long ago. Um, it wasn't dramatically different when I was covering it. That would have been in 2013, 2014, 2013, like those years when I was doing it for Mizzou. Like I remember that exact thing, getting called, you know, getting, getting the list and going down and having the press conference, all the assistant coaches, whoever had recruited so-and-so player and could speak on their Twitter is in full force in those years. And of course there Social was media is a big thing. You knew a lot of it ahead of time. And I think it does depend on your outlet and what your emphasis is, you know, as a, as a reporter and as a, as an outlet, like how you make your, you know, these rivals outlets and, you know, well, I, there's, I think there's still rivals 24 seven. There's a few competitors, but that is their lifeblood. Like those crazy people we talk about that are not respecting these children's decisions are the ones that are paying money to be on these message boards and get the information ahead of time. But I remember, yeah, you knew some of the big names that were heading and you probably knew a lot of the kids because somebody was paying attention to the kid with 600 Twitter followers tweeting out his announcement as if he were, you know, the most important player in the world that he had accepted his commitment to Missouri and, and all that. But really when you got into the nuts and bolts of it, was that what you mentioned, you get called down and, uh, you know, you get to go through all the players, but fact, it feels like it's sped up light years even since then. You know, that's 
10, not even 10 years ago. And now it's just, it's almost like it's trying to replicate pre draft in the NFL. It's we're going to, we're going to turn this into a cottage industry, which it has been. And it really has been So in the nineties also. Yeah. You, you, I mean, the probably, I don't know, maybe even in the eighties, but I was first aware of it in the early nineties of, you know, these recruiting tout sheets that you'd have, um, for basketball players, Jonah, what are those guys? I mean, there were some big names. Parade all American or no, not just parade, but they were coming out with these, they were these guys, they were considered like these gurus and they'd go around all the insiders. Yeah. Like, yeah, they had, there was a handful of them that you would go to. Um, and they were making money off of a newsletter or putting out a list of the latest commitments and all these types of things. But it's now, um, you know, kids who enter the NFL draft, uh, are being treated uh, are the kids who are possible NCAA division one athletes are being treated like kids entering the NFL or entering the NBA. And we, we roll our eyes at that too. Some like all the wasted breath that there is with mock drafts and trying to figure out which team has this need and do they see it the same way we see it? And are the bills going to draft a running back with the first pick and you can have, you know, you can go on, uh, you can have months worth of content on that alone. And now you see that's just now happening with kids that are now 16, 17, 18. Um, and in some anyway. ways it happens. You thought I was joking. Maybe this happens with 12 and 13 year olds. There's combines for them and their high school programs or in some States there's, there's major prep schools that are recruiting them. And in basketball, there's an AU element to that where these players are prospects long before they ever get to college and, and it's part of their development from a very young age is not just your development as a player and your skills and your ability. It's also your marketability and, and getting coaches to pay attention to you and media to pay attention to you and becoming a recruiting prospect as much as a actual player. And that's just part of the culture now. Um, remember when we had Dwight Gooden on the show about a year and a half ago, and, um, and his, his son, son was a five-star football. He, he, he was turned into a five-star recruit based on two games. He had flipped. He was a tight end, and they flipped him over to defensive end. And he was like a he was like the third or fourth-string tight end. And his dad finally talked him into, hey, given this, uh, give give pass rushing a try. He played two games, got four sacks, and he became a five-star recruit based on two games. Um, well, listen. But, so that reminds me of something with Bennett. It's a story I'm writing about this weekend. Hopefully, I can get it finished. But there's a he was a player at Bennett who has been coaching the last couple of years. I'm not going to tell you the whole story because I want everybody to go to WIVB.com and read it when it's up. But there's reasons why I would he anyways. hasn't played. <laughs> yeah, I'm there every morning. Well. There's reasons why he hasn't played and he's been coaching. But he went to a Syracuse camp and just the way he looked, running kids through drills, the Dino Babers, the coach, went up to Steve McDuffie and said, hey, who's that? I like your players, but who's that coach? And then they got to talk in and recognize that he could, you know, still play. And he's going to get a walk-on opportunity now just because he looks like a dude on the sideline. And he is a good player. But these players get recruited out of camps as much by what they look like as opposed to what they actually produce on the field in the fall. I will say from a reporting standpoint, it, it becomes when you're in the thick of it and the kids are actually, you know, you're covering the actual recruiting itself in the moment. It feels a little weird, but after the fact, it is usually one of my favorite things to ask of a college coach of a now professional player is like, how'd you find this guy? Which 
sometimes it's obvious it's a five-star play, like especially in football you know it'd be like how'd you find this guy but i'm finding in hockey it's really fun when it's like so how'd you find this guy and you know hockey recruiting is for college teams or, or whatever it may be is still uh it's not what football is put it that way i mean there it's it's a lot different when i did a story on the sabers russian prospects uh steven sardarian the third round pick from 2021 you know it was the first time that unh had successfully recruited a russian player or the first time this coach had uh, at least to his memory and so you do get some fun anecdotes after the fact when you revisit these things but covering it in the moment can be a it'd be a good excuse to have our our pal mike rodak join the conversation recruiting because... is a much more feel-good wholesome story when you write it from the player high school perspective cover it that way that yeah from college perspective yeah it, from the college perspective it feels like a big board and a mock draft and a you're determining well you know this this recruiting class is a failure because and that all these kids are sitting there like well the biggest triumph of my life is a big failure right. according to you know, and that's where it becomes a little bit weird. And the drafts are similar, I would say. You know, I think it's just sometimes helpful as a reporter to recognize where there's a lot of unknown, right? And I know it's easy to, or fun, or the thing to do to really, you know, bang the table and have a strong take. But I just think sometimes, you know, being like, well, we'll see, <laughs> you know, it, certainly the NHL draft taught me that this year. It's like, you know, you, I'm just going to tell you who these guys are uh, as I learn about them, who the Sabres think they are. And we'll revisit this down the road because right. frankly, this guy they picked in the fifth round, uh, I'll see him at development camp and then I'll see him in another year at development camp and probably the year after that. And then we'll talk. And know? he might never show up. Or they might trade his rights away before you ever see him. Right. So it's different than football in that regard where there is some instant judgment. But even then, I mean, look at Tage Thompson. You know, people were ready to write him off entirely. He was a first-round pick, pretty lightly recruited, ends up being a first-round pick. His projection got Jason Bottrell fired. Right. If anybody has any idea that Tage Thompson is going to become what Tage Thompson has become, Jason Bottrell's still the general manager of the Sabres. Right. So, yeah. And if he had become it a year or two, you know, a couple of years earlier, you know, which is, if you look at all, you know, a lot of statistical models that teams look at, they will say if he hasn't broken out by this point, you know, you got to bump the ceiling down and bump the projection down. And Tage just screwed that up a little bit. And, take that to the extreme with some of these 16, 17 year old kids that people are making declarations about a class being a failure. I mean, especially in college, you see in college all the time, you see NFL draft weekend, so many three stars, two stars, how many stars did Josh Allen have, you know? And it's like, if they got guy ends up in the right program, if a guy, uh, you know, is developed by the right people. Certain schools know what they're doing in that regard, uh, but still, you know, for some people, that's uh, that's good fun. So, all right. So, get this. This is, I guess, anecdotal, um, but plays into exactly what you're talking about, Matthew. So, I'm doing some Christmas shopping at Eastern Hills Mall, 
which uh, has a lot of like memorabilia type stores that are just kind of turned into pop-ups because these malls have a lot of empty storefronts. And I think, you know, people just like pay some rent for a few months and sell some cards and whatnot. And I got into a discussion with the guy who owns this particular one. And uh, while we're talking, I'm looking in the showcase and there's a box of cards. uh, And I wish I remembered what it was, but you got six cards in the entire box price tag on the, on the box, $725. And I said, all right, look, I kind of get memorabilia. I understand how cards work, but you're going to have to explain this to me. Uh, I like to think that I have a pretty, at least loose knowledge, and I'm not surprised by much in the memorabilia industry because I understand supply and demand and rarity and signatures and all kinds of stuff. But I'm like, how, how is this possible? Trevor Lawrence is on the box. It's a box of 2021 something or other, six cards for $725. And he says to me, he's like, what happened was the 2020. The 2020 draft class was so loaded with superstar quarterbacks. And we're talking about COVID and we've talked about it, Matthew, uh, you know, how everybody was predicting and the predictions came true that sports cards were going to become mammoth uh, business. And then COVID came along and, and expedited that even like cards were not worth as much as there was an investor in particular that you follow. He was saying it. Yeah, Gary V was all over that. Right, Gary, that's right. Uh, he's a sports agent. Uh, well, he owns an agency, an NFL, right. mostly NFL agent. So he the COVID comes along, and the 2020 draft class includes a ton of stars uh, out of, at the quarterback position. And so then, tw- and so people are investing in cards left and right. And so then here comes the 2021 draft class, and three quarterbacks are off the board with the first three picks five quarterbacks within the first 15 picks and memorabilia people love to invest in quarterbacks. Well, so it drove up the price before anybody saw any of these guys play. Now, Trevor Lawrence is showing some signs of life here in the past uh, couple of weeks, but number two overall was Zach Wilson. Number three overall was Trey Lance, who could be great, but the injury aspect of it, Justin Fields. Yes. Mac Jones, hmm, who knows, but you have so many rookie uh, expectations that are put on these, the, on the memorabilia that it drove up the price, uh, to where it just becomes unreasonable and people are buying these cards at this price. So now you can't really unload them. They have to stay at this price, even though it's not commensurate with what happened in 2020 with Joe Burrow and, um, you know, that whole crew, uh, of quarterbacks, uh, to a tag of Aloha and Justin Herbert, and you just have these, you know, MVP candidate type names that are being thrown around. Well, the, the next class doesn't have it. Um, I do want to put a bow on things regarding Dwight Gooden, who is a, he's a friend of the show. He came on the show. He talked about his son, Dylan Gooden, because that, that weird thing happened where he switched. It was from wide receiver to defensive end, not tight end. Uh, but he was deep backup, couldn't get on the field. Uh, he did, and my memory served correct. He played defensive end for two games, got four sacks, obviously very nice, uh, in Maryland, and he became a five-star recruit immediately. Two days ago, he signed with Maryland. Uh, he received 20, 20 Division I scholarship offers, and usually when you're of that caliber, you probably could have gotten 100 scholarship offers, but 80 or 50 schools know they're not, they don't have a shot. Uh, so his 20 schools included Tennessee and Penn State. 
Uh, he picks Maryland, which is his home state, uh, which is off of two games as a sophomore. Now he went on and played very well this past year as a junior. So it's not like it's a total wash, but the five-star label came after two games as a sophomore at a position he'd never played. That's amazing to me. Well, can I just wrap it up with one last recruiting grievance being that it's festivus and all, um, because, you know, you, you beat, they signed 20 players this week. Last year, they had the number one rated recruiting class in the MAC. It's too, it's a little early to figure out where that slides in because it's just the early signing period. But anyway, 20 players, a good number of them, I think eight or nine are three-star players. One of them's the Mr. Ohio running back, which is, seems like a good get. Um, but so a lot of recruiting coverage from media, but also, you know, that fan media gray area type analysis, everybody's a good get and everything was a Great job by this coach getting this player. This is a great class, and it's going to change the future. But if you really get into talking to coaches and high school coaches and in the recruiting business, you know, not everybody's a great get. Sometimes coaches have to be talked into taking a chance on these players. Are they? How many times, Matt, have you written about somebody who was under-recruited and he turned out to be a good player, but the, all the college coaches didn't think he was a good player? Josh Allen. Right. So all of the – there's just so much hot air in recruiting coverage. And, every you know, there's 140 – uh, colleges and, and about 139 of them had like the best class they've ever signed that they're really excited about and everybody's a good get. And, but then when they get on the field, they're not all that so great of a get. And a lot of them end up back in the transfer portal and being re-recruited later on. And recruiting has become about 50% recruiting transfers and re-recruiting your own roster. And as you said earlier, I do long for the days sort of when you got the recruiting list and you analyzed it a little bit, and then you really didn't judge these players until they actually got on the field. Now, every offer, every commitment, every day in the journey of football and basketball recruiting is an analysis and fans have their own opinions on who should be recruiting, who's going to be a star. When they're not a star, they blame the coaches for not developing that player properly. And it's just way too much hot air about uh, recruiting these, as you mentioned, children uh, that we don't quite know what they're going to be as adults. It's even more hot air than draft, like NFL draft coverage where couldn't believe this guy was available in the first, fifth round, you know, unbelievable. Couldn't believe it. You right. know, he should have been, got, you know, had a third round grade on him and you got no way to verify <laughs> that or even know what that means or, you know, and even, you know, you ask point blank, some people, you know, like, what does a four star mean? Like, how do you know what a four star is versus a five star? How do you know what a second round grade is? Versus a first round grade. Hey, it's these like, guys, uh, these guys don't know the difference between a forehead and a foreskin, huh? <laughs> it's like let alone I, a four star, huh? And Let's it's be like, careful with the four slander here. You know, it's like <laughs> people are like, they don't really, even the people that are doing it, I feel like mostly will just say, Well, I know it when I see it, or I, you know, I I have a catalog of what a four star looks like. So this guy is a four star. And to Jonah's point where you know, the instant rush to, to judgment. It's a, something I've thought a lot about, like we were talking about UPL and a couple of years ago, UPL was the guy every, like, Can't because, miss. because in hockey, I think people get excited about the prospects because like recruiting, you land these guys, but unlike that, they sometimes go away for a little while, right? But, you know, for a couple of years, maybe they're overseas, maybe they're still in juniors, whatever it may be. And you sit there and they're sort of out of sight, out of mind, right? Even if you're following UPL's 
exploits with the Sudbury wolves religiously, you can't have enough emotional energy to be pissed off when he lets in five goals uh, in a junior game. Yeah, I, you know, so or to even know what that means on a given night. But he gets to the NHL with nine games of NHL experience under his belt. And, you know, those first five or so games don't go well. And it's like, well, this guy's not an NHL goalie. It's like two or three years ago, you would have told me that this was the guy that they should plan the future around. And now it's 15 games into his NHL career. And just forget about him. He's 23, he's played 15 NHL games, nine of which were fantastic last year, you know, in terms of his overall sample size. So it is interesting how psychologically the next big thing goes to afterthought pretty quickly. And it actually is Devin Levi is the the next hot thing right now in goal, right? He's going to save the Sabres and he's going to fix all their goalie problems for the next 15 years uh, is the general, you know, optimistic line of thinking from uh, people who are a big fan of this kid. And he's, great he's a fantastic goalie he's an awesome human being uh he's a joy to talk to he's got a great head on his shoulders looks like he will find himself a nice nhl career but when i was talking to his college goalie coach over the summer he made that point about upl in terms of why devin levi went back to school because people were surprised why would this guy go back to school he throw him right in the sabers net you know after the way he played last year forget this throw him right in the net And his point was, you know, this guy gets to come back to school. There'll be pressure. You know, he's playing in the hockey East. It's not, it's not like he's playing in obscurity, but he's not going to be judged on every little thing. Like the second you go pro, the second you step on a college campus in the recruits case, you're judged on everything. You know, I mean, you're judged before that really, but the second it starts to count for the fans, you're not a prospect anymore. You know, UPL is not a prospect. He's just a guy that's not stopping the puck enough. You know, and and that's where the rush to judgment is. It's got to be tough on these on these guys, and especially more so in the the age of social media and everything else, where they can see a lot of that feedback in real time if they want to search it out. Not the healthiest way to to develop uh, your psyche as a professional athlete. Boys, have a great and safe holiday weekend. Hopefully you don't have to go anywhere. I am snowed in and uh, happy with that. Is it uh, going to be victory Sunday or is that observed on Monday because of the holiday? I think everything's pushed back. You know, it's like your garbage collection. Everything's pushed back. Um, we had some I people have, put their garbage out in the neighborhood today. Uh, it's like 50, 50, like some people have Friday and we have Monday, but even if it, you know, it depends which company you use and some people put their garbage out this morning. And I was just like, look, I'm, I do some silly things. That could be I, wishful thinking because it's not going to get picked up if not today because of this, there's going to be a snow bank. So of you course, roll yeah. the dice and hope, hoping and that they got there early. Yeah, but, some of that garbage is in another neighborhood by now. Well, yeah, I, that's how I found <laughs> out. I looked out the window and there was, you know, these garbage cans flying down the street, garbage flying all over the place. And I'm just thinking, I look down the street. I'm like, who, who did this? Who thought this was a good idea? It's because like by, the old movie theaters yeah. when the candy and the popcorn would be flying at you. Yeah. I was like, what is, you know, and that was pretty early. It got pretty nasty pretty early in the morning here and uh, you're down by the lake in the, in the South town. So it was, uh, 
I got a kick out of that though. But, you know, I was, like you said, they were probably just really, really wishful thinking that, uh, if not now, never, you know, because it's not until next Friday and next Friday, I don't know, maybe the holidays observed. So that was a tough, tough one. They had to chase that down as the uh, flash freeze was happening. Well, thank you guys for uh, breaking away from your Yule log to uh, join me here for a little while and talk some sports. Um, Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Uh, We will do this again before the new year, so I won't uh, say that one. We'll save that one for next week. And uh, everybody out there listening, stay safe, stay warm. Um, Hopefully you... Uh, are not working off battery power right now, but if you are, thank you for wasting the last of it by listening to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions.